The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. My guest today, Patty Mack, has been established in the entertainment industry for many years, known and respected for her forthright and successful approach to developing positive relationships for her clients and colleagues. With a wealth of experience, Patty talks to the values and strengths of those she represents and works with in continuing a gifted and enlightened life story. Patty, welcome to you. Thank you so much. And how are you today? Excellent, actually. I'm quite well. Well, it is a real privilege to have you here. And as you, as you know, and our listeners should know, this follows on from a wonderful uh, program that I enjoyed with George Meridian, yeah. a wonderful cinema photographer that you represent. Right. And uh, George Meridian suggested that you would be a wonderful participant in the program. And uh, again, I'm so pleased that you're here, Patty. Yeah, George is quite a fellow, and I, I think it's lovely that he suggested me to you. And, and I'm, I'm very interested in having gone in and not been... Um, aware of in discussion earlier than uh, you're contacting me. I've gone back now and listened to a number of programs, and I think it's really a wonderful thing that you're doing in your approach to the world and to peace in the world. Well, I am so very grateful uh, for that. Very grateful indeed. If I may, I would like to start uh, this program by exploring your early years. Uh, your your childhood, um, what you remember most well uh, during this period in your life, and and, and just as a, acting as a stepping stone uh, in into your initial career years. You know, it's interesting. You look back at your childhood, and in in a period when you're fifteen to twenty one, you have one opinion <clears throat> of your childhood, and then as you mature you look back and have a much more solid memory of what a foundation you were given. And I certainly have that. I grew up in a, a big Irish Catholic family in Burlington, Vermont, one of the most wonderful places in the world to be raised. And um, brothers and sister and, you know, fights and mom and dad and church and da-da-da and da-da-da, go through the entire thing and left home at, a, at, at quite a young age and didn't speak to my parents for almost 10 years. And then a boyfriend that I had at that point thought that was ridiculous because he was very close to his family and uh, drug me back to my parents' house in the 10th year on Christmas Day. Well, I thought he was insane. And rekindled my relationship with my family that um, lived on and endured until they passed away um, a few years ago. Um, I am grateful to them every day for the foundation they give, gave me, in, in, the religious foundation that they gave me. I went to all um, Catholic schools um, from a, a, after an unfortunate experience in kindergarten. Um, we were all moved to Catholic schools, even though my mother was a public school teacher. 
and um, my parents really instilled a, a sense and a value of uh, participation in whatever community you're in at any time. And it's sometimes I think their participation in the community, sometimes I was jealous as a child of, of losing their attention because my mother taught special education. And her students, I think she had somewhere between 30 and 35 in a classroom of, you know, challenged students, special education students, what was referred to in that time period as mentally retarded, um, which has now become politically incorrect, but was the terminology then. And, you know, in those classes, in those early years, in the late 50s, early 60s, it was a completely mixed bag. It wasn't a specific... Um, kind of of challenge and I think of my mother now she did that for over 30 years and I think of her now what a saint she was to have and and it was funny we really learned what a saint she was not I mean we all knew she was a saint but at her funeral it was the most incredible thing to see the people that came to 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 bear witness to the fact that she had been so helpful throughout her whole life to everyone in the community, especially in the special education community. And then my dad, who was a Marine, um, sort of was the structure and the discipline and the, you know, sort of kept us all moving forward. He converted from, um, from a Protestant religion to Catholicism when we were quite young and became, I think, even more um, uh, vehement Catholic than the rest of us that were born into it. And um, he later on in his life created a sheltered workshop, an adult sheltered workshop for adult mentally retarded, as they were called in those days, because it was once they factored out of school, there was no place for them to go and earn a living and so on and so forth. So my parents were sort of in in the business of providing, and we as children grew and learned that participation in the, the, the help of, with and the empathy for others was sort of what the goal of life was all about. So I had very good teachers in them and my Aunt Molly and my entire extended family. So I am very grateful to them and look back now fondly on my childhood and skiing and snow tobogganing and pony riding and running around the farm and, you know, picking apples and really know that um, we sort of had the idyllic um, childhood that many people um, you know, uh, wish for these days, and I, I am tremendously grateful. It it seems so strange to me that when we look back and we see the sort of things that we did as kids, you had mentioned that for 10 years you didn't talk to your parents. It almost seems like at that age we go through this period where we don't want anything to do with them. We don't want Daddy to hold our hands or, or you know, we want to be very uh, independent do you look back upon that and wonder why you you extricated yourself for that 10 years? No, I don't actually, because there were issues, which I'm not prepared to talk about, that did occur that caused that break. Mm. What is um, significant is that that break was mended, that particular fence was mended, and my parents and I were closer than we ever would have been if in that 10 years we had interfaced, because I was incredibly strong-willed. I was living in an alternative lifestyle, 
and my parents could not make um, head and their tails of what I was up to. And um, I really wasn't in the mood to explain it. I just needed, I needed freedom. I needed to be free. I needed to think for myself, and I needed to um, create a life of my own. And, and it, it, eventually, thanks to Doug, um, we wound up back together. And I think that 10-year break worked really well for all of us. I mean, it, it, it literally, I, I lived less than an hour or two from my parents, but never saw them or spoke to them, and um, didn't speak to most of my family. I did sort of still talk to my brothers, some of my brothers, and, and um, my sister, but um, I guess they would carry news back to the family so that they knew that I wasn't dead or dying, but um, it just, I needed to break, and so I know I don't look back, I don't pine for that 10 years at all. I had an extremely good time in that 10 years. Um, uh, I, I guess it's part of the, the rich tapestry of life, isn't it? It is. We, we, what I am grateful to them for is the foundation. I got the foundation. Because my parents were educators, I was always taught to seek, to seek my own answers. And I think that at that point when I left home, um, I was seeking and um, I, I had the opportunity to go out and find out what really made the world work because I did live in a kind of sheltered environment, even though we didn't have much money. I mean, I think people thought we had money, but we didn't have money. But we always had food in terms of my parents, in terms of my household. We always had food, and, and they were always very supportive, and they were certainly supportive of our education. And when I went out in the world and found out, oh, wait a minute, you've got to house yourself, you have to feed yourself, you have to clothe yourself, you have to finish this education you're only partway through, you have to find someone to pay for that education. I mean, it was pretty interesting. It was pretty interesting to go out there in the world and get a real taste of reality, the reality that I think my parents had sort of been lecturing me about for some time, and um, to go out there and, 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 you know, have a pretty rough first couple of years and then sort of sort it out and figure it out and, and uh, organize myself and, and get through it. Well, it's that period that shapes you as a human being for the rest of your life, isn't it? Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. Now, I'm very interested that, that you, um, you, you lived, as your biography says, uh, in a sort of style of barn dwelling. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, and then, you know, in the, in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, you, you, you travel in a, in a circle of cutting-edge, home-based organic musicians. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it's really funny. I mean, I, people go back to listen to the music of the 70s and, um, and, the, and the early 80s, and I sort of have this giant swath where that music isn't familiar to me because I, I wound up with this bunch of two different sets of musicians. One was this, we sort of lived communally in an area. We didn't live in a commune, but we lived in an area that was about a 50-mile area um, and, and where most of the people made their living as a musician playing in nightclubs and, and not nightclubs really is what we used to, you know, they, we call them nightclubs now. They were bars, you know, they were bar bands. And there was about six or seven different bar bands and we were all like, you know, at that point we were hippies. I mean, that's what we were. We, uh, we had the, you know, a cooperative. We would order from the Air One catalog. It would all be delivered. We'd parcel it out. We commonly gardened. You know, we cut wood together. We, you know, we drew water from wherever water was running because nothing was piped at that point. And, and at that point, uh, the person that I was 
with at that point owned a farm out in in a in a uh, sort of very rural part of Vermont in a place called Fletcher, and uh, we moved into that to the milking parlor of that cow barn and. And the last thing it had been used for was a cow barn, so you can imagine what the neatening of that was like. And it was funny. I remember the farmers who lived down the road. We got to be good friends with the farmers that lived on both sides of us. And one day they came. They had to come into the barn for something when we weren't there doing us a favor. We were in Burlington or something. And um, they told us afterwards that they walked in, and, and the wife said to the husband, God, my house isn't this clean. <laughs> but it was just this funny thing. I mean, we it was a structure. It, it was there. It was a structure. And, um, hey, there's a structure we can go live in. So we went and lived in that structure. And we had Ashley stoves. And we had that thing they tell you never to have, which is like 25-foot run of stovepipe on one side and a 10-foot run of stovepipe on the other and creosote dripping everywhere. And, but it was uh, it was great. We were young, and it was fun. Now, was it at this time that you were beginning to see a, a career track developing, perhaps? Well, I thought my career track at that um, life was uh, cooking and washing dishes. That's, I mean, that's pretty much what I did. I also worked for this great friend of ours, Dr. Ron Kay, who was a hip, who was a dentist. But because we were all hippies, we called him Doctor. We called him Ron Kay, the hippie dentist. Um, who was a wonderful guy, and I had gone to a, a, a dental hygiene school in, in this process of 10 years where I was figuring things out. And um, so I worked for Ron K. the hippie dentist. I'd like leave the barn in the morning in my little white uniform, my little white hat, my little white shoes, while everybody else was sort of flopped out of sleep, you know, under Indian bedspreads and come back at night at the end of the day. And Ron had his office in a barn. His office was in the remodeled barn. So it was like sort of barns were what it was all about at that point. The gifts they've given stay with us every day. Remember old friends we've made along the way. The gifts they've given stay with us every day. Yet throughout this period, I also of interest to me was given this style of living that you had chosen. You were um, uh, still uh, an activist on on behalf of the anti anti war movement, uh, and, and, and yet, as your biography does state, you still maintained this pro military attitude. There's a lot of different things going on there in your mind. How did how did you juggle all of those? Well, the thing is, is that I had relatives in the military. I was raised by a Marine. You don't get raised by a Marine and not come... I mean, if you truly embrace the teachings of your father, which I did, you know, the military had been incredibly good to my dad. My dad was a Marine, and when you're a Marine, you're a Marine forever. And he raised us in boot camp. I mean, we were in boot camp, you know, swabbing decks and, you know all of the phraseology that goes with um, being a Semper Fi child is there. And, and so the military, for me, is the greatest organization on, in any country in the world. 
because they are the reason that we have freedom. They are the reason that we get to sit, you and I, here at this moment in time and have this conversation on the phone because we're free to do so. So I am very pro-military. I'm very pro anyone who's made that decision. And the decision that they make is that they will, if asked, lay down their life for their country. So I am incredibly pro-military. And on the other hand of that, I am extremely anti-war. I don't believe that anything in the world can be settled by blowing someone else up. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I know it's been going on since the beginning of time, but my hope and prayer every day, every time there's a full moon, I go to that full moon and I ask it for peace on earth. Every time I look at a star, I wish for peace on earth. And every day when I say my rosary, I end my rosary with peace on earth. We just don't have to blow each other up anymore. With that said, did you therefore not ever uh, give any time or thought to following your father's footsteps? Oh, heavens no. Absolutely not. I never gave that thought for a second. And, and had you, would he, My brother, would, he, would he have allowed you to? <laughs> if I wanted to go into the military, yes. he'd have been the happiest guy in the whole USA. Are you kidding? I mean, every one of my cousins or my brother, anyone who went off to war, my father wrote to them every day. Every day. He remembered so well his experience, both in Korea and the end of World War II, he remembered it so well. He remembered that moment in time where the loneliness overtakes you, where you see things that you don't want to see. And I have to say, he never told us any of the things that he saw. We never really talked to him about his military service. We only found out about it. Well, I mean, we knew about it, but we didn't get any details on it until we found this box in the attic filled with photographs and letters. And, 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 and then we found out. And I remember when, when one of my cousins went off to, to Vietnam, he wrote to him every day. And when he came back, he said the thing that kept him going was knowing that every day there was going to be a letter there from my father about whatever was happening. I mean, he'd write about the price of tea in China. He didn't care. It was just that there was communication from home. It's so important to stay in touch with our military in the field or about to you know, disembark for the field. Because, I mean, this is their touchstone, and they're doing it for us. You clearly stay close to your father um, for the rest of his years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. After that after that 10-year absence, then I was sort of, they were a nuisance, and so was I, in both of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> is Vermont, though, very much home for you still, Patty? Well, it's so funny. I live here in Southern California now, but my license plate on my car says Vermont's home, VTS home. My goodness me, I thought you were about to say that the registration was Vermont. After all these years, you really would be winging it with the lo local policemen, wouldn't you? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, it's a California plate, but it just says VTS home. Oh, how wonderful. Every now and again, some, uh, I have a neighbor, my friend Sylvia, and she looked at my car when I put that plate on it, and she goes, Vermont, show me? <laughs> that's what she thought it said. I wish I could put a little umlaut in there that says, you know, Vermont's home, but... I can't, so it just says VTS home, 
Yeah, Vermont is is clearly where my heart is. Is clearly where my where my all of my um, you know juice in life comes from. It's this incredibly gorgeous pastoral magnificent place that is Vermont. It you know Vermont's a little overdone now. You know there's a lot of people have moved in there and so on and so forth. But they still manage Vermonters, both the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, can can join together on one thing, which is that they do not want the state overbuilt. They do not want the state destroyed. So they they try very very hard to preserve the state. And 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 it, if you if you are someone in the state of Vermont who is later on in life or you know finding that you have a need, there are twenty people ready to help you. Well, now that you are a true Californian. Uh, and we're moving forward slightly here uh, to your to your move to California. Um, what was it that? Uh... Well, I moved to California twice. I mean, the first time I moved to California was with these crazy friends of mine from Middlebury College, Courtney and Cynthia. They got married, and when they got married, we were we've been friends forever. Um, Courtney flew to California, and Cynthia and I drove out in the in their uh, their car. We got as far as Chicago, then we shipped the car, and I drove and I moved to San Francisco, and I lived there for about a year and a half. And it was during the period that both the Harvey Milk assassination occurred and Guyana, and this California, this San Francisco, this place that I dreamed of since I was a kid, all of a sudden took on this. Um, this, you know, ambiance that blew my mind. And Courtney and Cindy at that point owned the Castro Street building, and this was the center of the, the gay community in, in, in San Francisco. We had tons and tons of gay friends. So we were in, involved. We certainly um, were part of the march to, to City Hall with the, with the gay community. And, and we were so, you know, we were aware, politically aware at that moment and involved, and at the same time, Every single one of us was taking Est with Warner Earhart. And I don't know if you know what Est is. Est was another alternative um, uh, uh, lifestyle situation. It was, a, it, was a, it was a way in which to get it. That was the phraseology, to get it. And so we all took seminar after seminar after seminar and went on six days and all this other crap to try and figure how to get it. And in the end, what I figured out for me, I don't know if Werner would support this, but I figured out in the end there's nothing to get. There is nothing to get. Just live your life. Live your life. Be a decent person. Own up to what you've done, and 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 take care of it, and um and move on and live a productive life. So San Francisco was this thing. I mean, the Guiana thing blew my mind because the temple, the Guiana, the temple was. We lived on Laguna Street, and it was less than you know four miles from us. And the idea that all of these people would be led by someone, as it appears, is what happened to take their own lives in this stance against what they perceived to be a government intrusion into their lives, it blew my mind. I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are these people really gone? I, it was just, it, it was nuts. And the whole idea of, of Harvey Milk being assassinated and the others, and I remember so clearly um, Diane Feinstein being the one that stepped up that morning and said, you know, okay, we're going to have to deal with this, and, you know, everyone just take a deep breath. Don't do anything crazy. We're going to figure it out. I mean, she was such a great leader at that moment in time. And, you know, it was, 
that year in San Francisco really sort of rattled my cage from coming from sort of bucolic Vermont. It's like, hey, wait a minute, this stuff is really happening. It's happening right now. It's happening right here. I'm right in the middle of it. And thank God at that point I was involved with Est because it, it, it kept me calm because I might have panicked because that, those events happened really close together, if you remember. And I was shocked. And, and, and what happened within the city, how the city of San Francisco reacted to those two events was really quite quite amazing. And it so, so woke I, me up. I suppose the whole Dirty Harry sort of image uh, was, was, coming, was becoming too real, was it? No, 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 no. There was no, no the, 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 no, no, the no, guns no. in the air and the, you know, was No, 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 that was not my experience <laughs> at all. That was not my experience at all. My experience was an experience of a lot of people who I feel at that point in time were working their way towards some sort of empathetic enlightenment who were in shock that these two events could occur so close together and, and that we as a people somehow through some participation created it you know they made it allowed it to be a reality in our world we were stunned we were just stunned it wasn't militant at all there was no the most militant it got was when the gay community you know came to life again there was a very lively community in in san francisco at that point really fun really happy wonderful period and they were fighting for their rights and to have this person that had fought so hard for them who had done everything that a politician does and then on top of that what a gay politician does to 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 serve his people to serve serve his excuse me his constituency to have his life just snuffed out was like are you kidding i mean it was shock we were in shock there was no yeah was there some militants yes there was but that really wasn't the focus i was uh, i wasn't on that focus i was sort of in wonder like i cannot believe this has happened so this was enough to uh give you thoughts of moving further south down the state i moved back to vermont i went back to vermont i said forget this i mean this is a little too real for me I gotta go like rethink this whole thing. But I did take the precepts of Est with me. I mean, the understanding of there is order in the world, there is, um, you know, you can choose. You get to choose your reality. And um, you need to go take a deep breath somewhere and then try this again. And unfortunately, I went home to do that and then I had another um, uh, really serious tragedy in my life and could not be on the east coast just the memories were too strong i had a death of someone very close and and um and another friend of mine who lived in in los angeles ann curry called me up and and bent mugen the two of them called me up and they sent me a plane ticket and they said just come out here i went to bed for a couple of months and my parents were very concerned i went home to my parents house and went to bed for a couple of months after this other tragedy and um, Anne got me pried out of my parents' house, and I came to California and started my life again, started over. I really thought life was over, and, and it, proved, it has proved not to have been over. And, you know, here I was now, basically, this girl raised by this Marine coming to Los Angeles, trying to find a job, and I got a job by accident um, at a production company, International Producer Services, IPS, 
um, run by Jim Summers. And uh, Ben's brother, Finn, worked there. And Finn really is the one that talked him into hiring for the first job, which was, you know, a horrible production assistant job cleaning out garages. But I was, you know, I was this person that sort of, you know, oh, you need this garage cleans? Okay, well, let me do that. I'll organize this garage. And it was filled with these films called Eat Right to Your Heart's Delight. And there were six films in the series, and six went together with six booklets, and then there was an over booklet, and blah, blah, blah. And it was just all sort of thrown in this garage. And I remember renting a second garage myself with my own money so that I could organize them and move them as organized into the new garage. I think that that uh, impressed Jim, and so he gave me a job. And I wound up working for him for many, 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 many years, and he really taught me the ins and outs of the business and, and very much fathered me, was a very good mentor and um, his wife was also his business manager at that point Laura Lizer and and the two of them between the two of them they really took me under their wing and you know protected me in this you know what what you know Los Angeles can be a very frightening place and um, and I had this all of a sudden built-in family between the Mugans and and the Summers and and the friends that I made and um, and life sort of just moved on, and I, I, I was given the opportunity to learn. And having been taught by my mom and dad, I took that opportunity and uh, and learned, and wound up a producer for them. And and I did want to, and I do want you to move progress forward from there. But what was it? A, what were the the differences between San Francisco and Los Angeles? Was it uh, perhaps you had similar? events taking place it was the same generation same times was it that you had become fully immersed in this production business and and protected so much by these individuals that the outside environment you were protected from at this stage you know i think that the really the reality was is that san francisco is such an incredibly beautiful place and so much of what i was doing in san francisco was so fantastic. And then these two events happened very close together that shocked me and sent me away. By the time I got to Los Angeles, I was a bit more realistic. I was a bit more realistic about, yeah, things happen in the world. That's what the world's all about. Things happening. Yes, did I feel incredibly safe when I went to work for the summers? No question. And I maintain a friendship with Jim to this day, and that's like, you know, 35, 40 years ago. 35 years ago, probably. Um, you know, he's always been there for me and always will be there for me. He's like a, he's not old enough to be a parent, but um, he, he is like a parent to me. I think the difference between Los Angeles and San Francisco also is, um, is that all of a sudden I was in this like crazy business where I couldn't believe the things that people got paid to do. <laughs> I mean, it was really like this film industry. Wow, this is amazing. You know, for me, you know, any little bit of pay was wonderful. Um, I remember learning the lesson of this is what you get paid today, or say I was being paid like $75 a day. Coming from Vermont, that was a lot of money. But then I found out there was no end to the day. The day could be a 15, 16, 18-hour day. Then 75 bucks for 15 hours didn't look so good. So I negotiated better after that. But you, you found that you were enjoying life in the production environment? I was. We were in this great building on 3518 Coanga West, and in that building were three major stunt companies. There was Stunts Unlimited, there was the Stuntmen's Association, and the Women's Stunt Association. And 
Hal Needham was down the hall, who was a wonderful director, and you know he had a, a wonderful. He had been Burt Reynolds' um, stand-in for a gajillion years, and they were close, very close. And they'd made Smokey and the Bandit when when um, Hal had hurt his back and wrote it in a in the um, in his hospital bed. He wrote this movie, Smokey and the Bandit, and they did that movie. And so it was like it was a big happy building full of people, you know. And you know you always had someone watching your back, and it was all some crazy. You know, every now and again you'd come to the office and there'd be you know stuntmen doing high falls off the top of the building into airbags, and you'd sit there and go, "What is this crazy world I've joined?" But it was always fun, and everybody was fun, and everybody worked really hard. I mean, it wasn't like anybody was sitting back and uh, and uh, you know sort of collecting a day's pay. People worked hard. This was a bunch of working people in that in that building at thirty five eighteen and. It's not there anymore. The, the uh, I think this Nissan that's next door is taking it over and tore the building down. But it was we had so it was so much fun. It was just like everybody was busy all the time. We had lots of stuff going on, and um, everybody was helping everybody else out. So it was you know it was really it was a, it was a wonderful place and a wonderfully productive time in the industry. And you know we were doing I was it was commercials and I remember going up to. Courtney and Cynthia eventually moved out of San Francisco and moved to um, Tiburon or Mendocino. No, where did they move? They moved somewhere like that, some one of those places. And I, we were shooting on the top of Mount Tamalpais at one point for um, General Tires. And I remember Courtney and one, you know, Courtney, Courtney came from a very wealthy family, and he said to me at one point, he said, "So what's the budget of this commercial?" And I said, "I don't know, three, four million dollars." And he goes, "Oh, give me a break!" And I had to show him the budget so he would believe me. And that was, you know, back in the day when, you know, we were really creative in the commercial industry when, when, um, when the product companies had money and put the money into their commercials, and and at the same time, the advertising agencies, the production companies, and the and the advertiser, the actual product company, everybody was in it together. It was a team effort. So you know, sometimes you'd send money back to the to the advertising agency or to the production company that if anybody out here who's in production now hears me say this, they're going to say I'm a liar. But it's true. We used to send money back. Hey, you gave us too much money. Take this hundred grand back. You know, blah, 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 blah. It was a different time. It was, you know, it was a healthy advertising community. There was a lot of money, a lot of creativity, a lot of... Um, a lot of fun and a lot of hard work and uh, it all worked out and with that i'm sensing a lot of nostalgia here a lot of wonderful memories oh, yeah. and, and and almost that they were different times uh, they were different times morally and ethically and every sense of the the work ethic especially uh, it, it, was that the case you know what i'm telling you i'm not willing to make that leap of faith the reality is i know the time that i was in and I know what happened in it. And I have a, a window onto the time that we're in now. And I would strongly suggest that everywhere there are still really ethical, really good, really participatory, really wonderful people. And I think that oftentimes people have a tendency when they think of their nostalgic memory looking back and looking forward say oh it's too bad it didn't stay like that well the truth is i'm no longer you know whatever i was then 30 years old i'm no longer 30 years old or 25 years old coming up having a memory but there are 25 year olds and 30 year olds out there right now that are making those same memories and they're involved with people that are just as good as the people that i was involved with i don't think things change at all i think that our focus changes 
and we suggest that something negative is going on where we have a positive memory of what happened to us. It, it, That's it, what I think. Yes, and it's certainly easy to criticize the, the youngsters. I'm certainly aware of that. Just I was a youngster. You know, I didn't mm. know, as, excuse my language, I don't know if I can say it. I won't say it because I think it's probably swearing, but I didn't know from my Shinola. I didn't know a thing when I got here. I was taught. So these kids that are out there right now that don't know a thing, somebody better teach them. And, and if they're open to be taught, there will be a teacher. A teacher will show up. That's the absolute truth of it, as far as I'm concerned. And I think that that is the way that, that life works. Um, what I'd like to do, Patty, is just prior to your uh, return back to Vermont to, to look after your parents in their, their mm -hmm. older age, I'd just like to uh, touch on the blackbird. Um, this is an enormously interesting uh, topic to me. This uh, production entity that, that you oversaw uh, for the black professional, can you, can you talk to me That's about really that? That's really funny, yeah. I mean, before, before Blackbird, there was a company I was involved in in Vermont, which is a company called Philo Records. Philo Records is now no more, but Rounder Records, God bless them, in Boston, has sort of kept Philo alive. And Philo was this um, record company that offered an opportunity in some cases, and in some cases just did things for free, to maintain um, an a ethnic look at music, at folk music, true folk music in the United States. And they also sort of had a more contemporary label as well. But there was Philo, there was Fretless, there was, you know, a number. And, and in that group, again, this is another whole different group of musicians. There, some of our, our, our greatest folk artists in the country, um, in my opinion, you know, were a part of those Philo days. And Philo, interestingly enough, was also in a barn. And, um, you know, you Utah, Utah Phillips, Mary McCaslin, Jim Ringer, and much more esoteric, like the Baudouin family and so on and so forth, they kept this ethnic music alive and this sort of contemporary folk, slightly Western, slightly, you know, blues, jazz, you know, um, you know, squeeze box and, and, you know, just, you know, Zydeco. And, you know, it was just this amazing group of people, you know, Bill Schubert and Michael Couture, who, who really were Philo Records. And then all the rest of us who were all the basic hangers on, I said, you know, I, I, you know, raised money and did publicity and washed dishes for Philo. That's what I did. It was like, and the, the studio was in the barn and, you know, we'd all have to, you know, you know, stop running water because we'd be recording somebody. And it was, Philo was just an amazing thing that happened in Vermont prior to my uh, leaving for San Francisco. And then I went to San Francisco. Then, then when I went back to, Ver back to Vermont, then came back, um, I went to work for Dove Films. Dove Films was this, actually I went to, I didn't, I worked for Dove Films before I went back to Vermont. I worked for Dove Films, wonderful people, Cal and Ross Bernstein. And, um, you know, they did, they were a large commercial production company, and I worked for them for some time. Eventually, was there? Actually, I went in there as their executive producer. And uh, one day, I'm sitting there, and Cal and Ross come in and have a chat with me because two young fellas had come in. That one who John Simmons, who they'd known forever, and they came in, and it was, this was I don't know the late '80s, maybe um, no mid '80s, maybe. And they came in and said. Um, you know, we're, I put it in my in that little write-up that's there. You know, we're black, we're beautiful, and we can't get a job in this town. And it really was true. There was so much advertising going on, so many music videos being done, so much happening, and a lot of black artists. And the reality is, the only thing available to them was non-black, 
crews. There were no African-American crews. And um, we thought that sucked, excuse my language. And so Dove Films was based on a peace precedent. You know, that was the, the Dove of Peace. That's what the, the company was based in. And so Cal and Ron said, okay, Patty, so we're going to bring Foster and Johnny in here, and we're going to try and help these guys, you know, put together this company, Blackbird. Obviously, we named it Blackbird because the company was, was bird-oriented. And um, so they started Blackbird, and, and I was sort of like somewhere around, um, usually be, uh, because they, they needed assistance, because they'd never, you know, a lot of people had worked, a lot of black African-Americans had worked as, and it was black in those days, that's what we all called everybody, but it was African-American, um, had worked on crews as like the third grip, or the third electrician, or the, you know, the the camera loader or whatever, but in key positions, they had never been given, or they hadn't to that point been given what we thought was the opportunity that they should get. And they were highly skilled individuals. And so the reality is Blackbird was born, and, and there was an advertising agency in Chicago called Burrell Advertising, and they pretty much marketed to the black community, and they had a, a wonderfully um, sensitive executive uh, there who said, hey, look, we called them and said, hey, look, you know what? 90% of your work is, is geared towards the black community, the African-American community, and you've got all white crews and, and white directors doing this stuff. Why don't we bring in some people who actually understand African-American hair, African-American skin, you know, what kind of cars an African-American would like to be driving, and so on and so forth, and they got it. Burrell Advertising got it immediately, said, we love that, let's do that. And we weren't anti-anybody else. We were just pro-giving the African-Americans that you're selling to the opportunity to work on these jobs. And so Blackbird um, went on for a while. I left the company um, to go home because of my parents, um, you know, about a year and a half into Blackbird. But Johnny Simmons is actually still my client. He's a cinematographer, a wonderful cinematographer, and, um, and is still my client. And, um, you know, that was like, it was wonderful that Cal and Ross Bernstein, who who are the king and queen of uh, Cal's past on now, rest his soul, but um, the king and queen of um, equality for all. And, um, and, and they put their money behind these, these young men, and we just had gajillions of people show up. We put out the word that we were going to start this you know, African-American or black production company, and did anybody want to learn? And everybody showed up. It was fantastic. It was really a fantastic company and incredibly vital and fun and, and, and different. I mean, it was really amazing for me to be on a set, right? I'm the only white person there. It was really interesting. Were you, in, were you then setting a president for the industry? No, I don't think. I mean, we didn't think about it like that. I have no idea. I don't know what the industry thought. I don't care. The reality is, is that for us, we knew people that we loved that we knew well, who couldn't get a job in the industry that we were in where everybody else was working, everybody else was getting a job. I don't know if it was, if it was racist or not racist. I have no idea. I don't think about those things. I don't see race. The reality is, is that they needed an opportunity. They had identified the issue, and they asked if we could help them with it. Roz and Cal volunteered their finances, and I volunteered my time, and we did it. And, and lots of people have, have um, moved on out of that company into other 
you know, really wonderful jobs in the community. And thank God that the community itself, the African-American community, has risen as they have risen, and, 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 they, and their opportunities are there, and, and they are availing themselves of those opportunities. And at the same time, everyone lives in harmony. I think it's freaking great. What it does sound to me is if you were involved... Uh, in something that was that was quite profound and changing the industry. What I'd like to do here is move on. I realize that you moved back to Vermont for a period. Mm-hmm. Now, what was it that initiated the idea of becoming an agent, Patty? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I was moving back to Vermont, and this this crazy guy, Creighton Smith, who was a who owned an agency, Smith Gosnell Nicholson. It was really the largest below the line agency of its time, Creighton actually created the, um, that moniker of, of, of representation below the line. Below the line is anything, you know, below the director. You know, it's, it's the cinematographers, the production designers, costumers, hair and makeup, so on and so forth. They were unrepresented until Creighton sort of came along and created this company that started representing and elevating their position, though they had always been in, you know, wondrous position. And um, so he had this agency. He had, they had worked with them, Debbie Hausler, who was um, their commercial agent there and, you know, sort of jack-of-all-trades in their company, you know, and I had worked together for a long, long time um, when I was a producer. And Creighton had heard of me through Debbie, and, and he approached me uh, sort of unrelentingly when he heard that I was giving up the old executive producing shtick and going back to Vermont. But I was going back to Vermont because my parents needed some organization in their lives, and so Creighton kept at me, and finally he said, okay, look, just sign a, sign a contract before you leave, and whenever you're ready to come back, you'll have a job. And I went, well, okay, that's not such a bad deal. So um, I did that, and after about three months of being in Vermont, I was really happy I had a job to go back to, but then I had to address the fact that what I was going to be was an agent, and I came from that school that, you know, agents were not that much fun to deal with. They really weren't that much, because there was so much more demand than there were really good artists to fit that demand and sometimes you'd have a dream of who you wanted to have do a job and you'd call the agent and the agent would be like you know off the record they wouldn't be telling you this but they'd be feeling like yeah that's who you'd like to have do it but trust me when I tell you that person's not doing that so let's try something else so you didn't always get everything you wanted from an agent so I thought oh god what am I doing but the truth is is once I got into it and sort of started working in it I realized I've been an agent my whole life I mean, I come from a huge family. I was constantly brokering deals between my cousins, my brothers, my sister, my family, and then later on in, in, in other relationships. I was constantly brokering the deals or taking care of the needs or like, you know, this thing needs to be done here. Okay, I guess I can do that. Da, da. So whatever, I just took to it like a duck to water. It was just um, once I, after about the first year, I was like, oh, man, this is great. Somebody wants to pay me to do this? This is fantastic. So I loved it. I, I mean, I loved the whole art of the deal. I also love fairness, and, and um, I love helping someone exacerbate that about themselves that is a positive and helping them discuss that about themselves that may be a negative and sort of shepherding a little bit along the way. I'm, I'm much better with um, you know, younger starting out clients than I am I think probably with more established clients who have more bad habits. I mean, I have this precept for my company, which is basically 
uh, you can be my client. We don't need a contract. You stay as long as you want. If you don't want to leave, you're welcome to go. But no lying, no cheating, no stealing. And I, and I, I love that statement, that Mark Twain precept of tell mm. the truth, there's nothing to remember. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> tell the truth, there's nothing to remember. It's great because if it's the truth, it's just there in your memory. You don't now, have to think about what you said. It's just the truth. Now, what about the decision to represent with the Mac Agency, cinema photographers and production designers. What, well, what was the idea behind that? Well, the truth is, is I, I, I was happy at Smith, Gosnell, Nichols, and I was actually very happy there. Um, I had been offered by other agencies in town an opportunity to come to them. I'd made a deal with Creighton, and I stand by my word. And then something happened within the agency. I said, if this ever happens again, I'll leave. It did happen again. And as it was happening, I trying to figure out what to do in kind of a panic. I went, oh, wait a minute, I made a rule about this. I'm leaving. See ya. And I left. And so my clients, which is really interesting, um, not my clients, Smith, Gosnell, Nicholson's clients, who some of whom were actually my clients that I brought to their agency, um, started showing up at my house after they heard that I had left the agency and, you know, said, start your own company. Don't go to work for somebody else. Start your own company. I'm like, are you guys nuts? I mean, I just finished up with my parents. I was like so deep in debt. I had really sort of indentured myself for what I thought was going to be life, um, trying to take care of my parents' needs, because I sort of promised myself, my brother Frank and I promised each other and, and, and uh, our parents that, you know, they wouldn't go to a nursing home, they would be taken care of at home, they would not have to, you know, go through that, and that's what the Irish do, they take care of their own. And, you know, I, unfortunately, it was getting a little out of control, because my cousins were having to come in, and because my dad was using his, you know, med alert to call them to get them a quart of milk at the grocery store and stuff. So we sort of had to get control of that. And in that process, um, my, whole, my whole sort of attitude towards everything kind of changed and realized that life, you know, is terminal. As Bob McLaren says, none of us are getting out of here alive. And um, I realized that there is, there, there is a way to live a life. There is a way to participate in life. And there's a way to be a part of life and awake and paying attention so that if someone's in distress or someone is in need and you see them, you don't question the fact that they have that need. You, if you are able, facilitate a solution. And that's sort of how I operate. Does that make sense? It, it does. And... I'm interested in, in the final minutes of the program, in those that you represent, the, these amazing creative talents. Yeah. Um, and what drives them? And perhaps you better than anybody understand the pitfalls that they go through. I mean, they're, they, they're yeah. constantly going through an awakening period in their own evolution, as, as, as we all are. How do you, in these last minutes of the program, how do you aid them how do you mentor them with the with the wonderful experience that you have behind you to to constantly keep them motivated well i don't have to keep them motivated they started motivated i i got lucky to represent them i work for them they don't work for me and the reality is is that my great participation with all of them is to listen to listen and hear what the angst is what the problem is what the challenge is and what it is they want to do and do the best that I can every day to steer them in the direction of that which they want to do instead of that which they 
sometimes get stuck with doing because that's what's available. But the reality is, is I think being a good agent takes a lot of listening. Um, I do like the sound of my own voice, I have to admit it, so I do offer, <laughs> offer advice probably where I don't need to. And my clients are, are hip enough that, you know, if I'm starting to give them advice they don't need, they just cut me off. So it works out very well. <laughs> I mean, they, people that do what they do, the people that I represent and have represented, they're so motivated already, they don't need me for motivation. I think that what they need me for is a sounding board more than anything else. I often tell the client, before you rip somebody's head off on this shoot, call me, get it out of your system so you can go back and do your job. That's really, you know, I'm a 24-7, 365 agent. They know they can reach me anytime they need to. And, it, and if there's a crisis anywhere, anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, I'm available. And, I, and I'm really just available as a sounding board more than anything else. If there's a real technical problem in something that's happening in their deal that isn't working, well, okay, so then I get involved. But uh, other than that, I'm just a sounding board more than anything else. In the final minute of the program, Patty, what are your aspirations for the future? What are your what are your thoughts for all of us in the in the coming couple of years? My aspiration for the future is always the same one. It's the same one since I was three years old and thought I understood infinity. It's peace. I I so believe that we can live peacefully on the planet. Uh, if I have a personal wish, I wish that the world would get out of Barack Obama's way and let him do what he needs to do so that that peace can begin. I really believe in this man in, in such a, a, a fibrous way. I, I so believe that he can solve these problems with the cooperation of everyone around him. I wish every day that Hillary Clinton stays strong and does what she does for our country. And I, I believe that the, the melding of people, as soon as you meet someone that you think you know, you, you suggest we don't like this person. I, I never, I don't, I wasn't raised that way, so I don't do that, but I know that does happen. If you go and meet that person, talk to that person, spend some time with that person, all of a sudden you'll find out you love that person. And if we all on the planet just recognize that everyone else is a human being and, and, and has their own issues, and if we could collaboratively converse in a positive way, that perhaps we could put to rest that which is angry and violent and, and aggressive and, and maybe grow the next five or six generations in, in a peaceful way. Patty Mack, it's been such an enormous pleasure to share this program with you today. I wish you so much luck for the future. Thank you so much. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at the official website, davidgibbons.org. There is a fully functional blog site there where you can leave questions for any of our guests, and I'm sure that they'll be delighted to answer those when they have a spare chance. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.